Simple yes or no for the panel, and I'll start with you, Coach Few. Uh, thanks for being with us today. Uh, yes or no, should every student athlete um, have a right to earn money from their name, image, and likeness? Yes. Dr. Emmer? Yes. Mr. Gilmore? Yes. Dr. Frederick? Yes. Mr. McKenna? Yes. And Mr. Minton? Yes. Now, given that, I have one question to ask. Why did it take so long? We've been having this argument for over a decade. It's common sense. Coaches have been making millions of dollars while students are making nothing. Uh, let's be very real here. The NCAA is at the table only because it's in the hall, kicking and screaming here after dithering and delaying too long. Well, we thought the NCAA was going to be able to step forward and set the rules and had said to the NCAA, if you cannot do this, we will do it for you. That is the posture in which we find ourselves right now, is the inability of an organization to move to a point of decision. This is why the states have taken it upon themselves to do what the NCAA has proven incapable of doing. What we're seeing is a chain reaction of states filling a gap in protecting people. It is classically what happens in our federal system. I've been at consumer protection for three decades now, and this historical pattern is repeated every time, where states fill a gap and then a national standard is sought by a group that fears a patchwork. Yeah, I have a, a just a tactical question for us in the next three weeks. Um, if we're trying to enact a national NIL standard, Dr. Emmert, I'm trying to figure out why we would also try to complicate this matter by providing uh, immunity against claims from former students. Like, what, What's that got to do with the subject at hand? Now, Dr. Emmert, uh, are you, is the NCAA planning, if Congress doesn't act soon, to file injunctions against states with NIL laws? We've not taken that position yet. The board, that, that decision would be up to the Board of Governors, a representative body of university presidents, but so far that decision has not been made. Could you give me a sense of your decision-making process? Do you have a lean? Have you considered it? Is this under discussion? It's been widely discussed, as you can imagine, but again, there's not been any decision made. I get that there's no decision made, but you're here, and I'm asking you, what are you going to do? And I'd like you to give me a little clarity on where you are. It's, it's absolutely true that procedurally, you haven't decided. I'm asking you whether it's likely or not, what your thoughts are on this. Uh, again, it won't be my decision, it'll be the Board of Governors' decision. Uh, final question for Professor McCann. As we consider this legislation, the NCAA is asking to, their, in their words, clarify that uh, athletes are not employees. That seems to me to be a massively consequential choice here. And again, separate from the question of NIL. And, and I guess what I'm observing here, not an expert in this space, but an expert in legislative politics, if you will, is that Dr. Emmert is asking for a really big trade in exchange for a national NIL standard. And I don't think we're prepared to do that uh, in terms of executing on it. And I'm not sure that these things are on point with the 
narrower question of NIL, and I'm wondering if you can comment there. Yeah, I, I don't view that as a clarification. I view that as a massive change. I don't see the need to address that in an NIL bill. Just like I would say other things that we've talked about are separate from an NIL bill. Yeah, I, I don't view that with respect, uh, Dr. Emmer. I do not view that as a clarification. I view that as a massive change. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, Dr. Emmer, I'd like to start with you. Since from your testimony, as well as previous reports that the NCAA has an inclination to consider and perhaps advocate for either a partial or a complete exemption from antitrust laws. In your view, is the product that you, you offer, is it so unique that it warrants the extraordinary step of either less accountability or no accountability under the antitrust laws? Senator Lee, thank you for the question. I think first and foremost, it, it needs to be clarified that I have not heard anyone, I certainly haven't, and I don't know who has advocated uh, on behalf of a total antitrust exemption, quite the contrary. First of all, we obviously seek, as we all seem to agree to, a uniform national model under which students can benefit financially from the use of their NIL. Thirdly, we all recognize the need for preemption of state laws provide the kind of consistency we all want across the country. And uh, most everyone agrees that we need a single na national standard rather than 50 different rules, and that's why we're here today, I hope. Well, um, Mr. Gilmore, um, you seem to be outnumbered on this panel five to one, and I'm, I'm sure you're equal to that task. But your response to Coach Few, uh, I guess, would be that's a decision that the uh, duly elected leadership of the state of Washington made, and we ought to see how this plays out. I want to give you an opportunity, since it seems that five members of the panel have another view. Would you like to weigh in and respond to um, to their, their testimony in that regard, with regard to the patchwork? And we need to listen to the athletes. They are the ones who are all too frequently outnumbered in this conversation. Thank you. Well, I do want to thank everybody for participating. And to that point, Mr. Gilmore's point, we are going to have a panel in the future that will include a panel of athletes so that we can hear their illumination of the healthcare, scholarship, standards, and education issues. Uh, Dr. Amert, I think it is disappointing that your Board of Governors chose not to vote on the NIL rules. And under your leadership, student athletes have been really silent when it comes to these issues because of an NCAA that cannot seem to make up its mind. So my question to you is simply this. Do you think it is time to call your leadership of the organization into question? Do you think you are still capable and fit to lead this organization to make a decision that is going to be fair to the student athletes and their parents? Uh, Senator Blackman, with all due respect, that's not a question that I need to answer. That's a question that those for whom I work. Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, which is bigamateurism.com. And I also have some stuff in a blog that I've been writing in for over two years now. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com, C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right. Well, this is a really interesting time in college sports, and 
it's going to become even more interesting as this July 1st, 2021 deadline approaches. And that's the day that the Florida name, image, and likeness law will go into effect. And there are a few others, but Florida really has been the focus of this panic about the name, image, and likeness deadline. And there were hearings yesterday in the Senate Commerce Committee. And remember, this is where the whole nil compensation debate started in February of 2020 with the first hearing on February 11th. And I've talked a bit about that. But this hearing brings full circle the NCAA's quest for the iron throne of college sports regulation. And because of the way that the NCAA and the Power Five have mismanaged this entire nil debate, the NCAA has gone and the Power Five, although the Power Five were in the background in these hearings, and that's an interesting dynamic, and I'll get to that in this episode. But the NCAA is in triage mode, and they trotted out the whole panoply of things that they want to preserve their business model. And those are an antitrust immunity provision that would protect them from federal antitrust lawsuits. They want the non-employment status of student-athletes to be preserved by having a federal declaration that athletes cannot be deemed employees of their university. But the primary focus and the thing that the NCAA wanted to come out of this hearing was preemption of state laws. And I hate to say that I'm right about this, and I don't want to get into a bunch of I told you so's, but when I first started writing about the NCAA's campaign in Congress and its dishonest use of name, image, and likeness compensation as a vehicle to basically make itself a bulletproof from any and all external regulatory threats, whether from Congress, federal courts, state legislatures, I said that the crown jewel of the NCAA and Power Five's campaign was the federal preemption of any and all state laws that attempted to regulate in the area of athlete compensation or any other eligibility rule. And the NCAA, I think, essentially admitted that when its working group started talking about uh, intervening in Congress and getting the Senate's help to Uh, allow it to provide name, image, and likeness compensation. And we really want to do it, but we can only do it if we get all these powers and immunities, which, if granted, would allow the NCAA and Power Five to do nothing on nil. And I believe that's their intention. They're going to do the bare minimum to make it look like they've done something. But what they really want are these extraordinary federal protections and immunities. And in this triage, the NCAA has landed on preemption because it is in panic mode right now. And going back to the working group's conceptualization of its Senate campaign, and that really wasn't clear until the working group's final report in April of 2020, because they had been very coy, and I would say dishonest, about the inroads they had made in the Senate through this subcommittee that was not widely known of the working group that was specifically tasked to seek help from Congress. And that was the origin of the Senate hearings that occurred in 2020. But in the way that they characterized their three objectives, antitrust immunity, athletes can't be employees, and federal preemption of state laws, they said that they weren't necessarily expecting to get all three of those. And they may have to to focus on one or more and exclude others. And I have always believed that 
preemption was really the centerpiece here, and that that's what the working group was talking about. If they needed to triage and prioritize, they were going to land on preemption, and that's exactly what's happening right now. And I'm going to go through the witnesses that testified, but one thing was clear. This was about pumping uniformity and eliminating the patchwork of state laws and the hodgepodge of state laws. I, I didn't go back and do a word count, but the word uniformity and the word patchwork and the word hodgepodge and the word conflicting requirements, all of those words and all those concepts were just pounded into that hearing. And when you look at the written testimony as well, it was focused to that one goal. And I want to start my discussion in this episode with where I think this is going to land and what the NCAA and Power Five are really trying to do here. And then I want to go back and look at some really interesting features of this hearing, including the fact that it occurred at all. And I think that may telegraph down the road where other athletes' rights legislation or NCAA Power Five legislation may be viewed in a Congress where the NCAA and Power Five don't have an automatic built-in advantage through partisan politics and uh, Republican control of the Senate. Because as we've discussed, the flip in the Senate after the Georgia special elections was consequential. And that's when the NCAA and Power Five pulled completely out of Congress. And the NCAA stopped its voluntary rulemaking. They slammed the brakes on nil in unison. And they were really waiting to see what was going to happen in this Austin case. And we still don't know that yet. And I think that's adding to the panic that the NCAA and Power Five are feeling. But what I think you're going to see as we bump up against this July 1st deadline, which isn't what it's been made out to be. I'm going to talk about that too. But what you're going to see is the NCAA and Power Five and their allies and pitchmen in the Senate, particularly on the Commerce Committee, and those are primarily Roger Wicker, who was chair of that committee, and Jerry Moran, who also was a mover and shaker back in 2020 in getting these hearings going. In fact, the very first hearing occurred in a subcommittee of commerce that Moran chaired. So he's been a point person. And then in February, he introduced a bill that I'm going to talk about in more length that is right down the NCAA's alley. It reads like it was written by NCAA lawyers, and so does Wicker's bill. But we have these senators panicking right now, and they are really pressing the issue. And I think what was happening behind the scenes was that the NCAA was trying to get its ducks in a row to re-strategize in Congress after it lost its advantage in the Georgia special election. And the interests that are, are just really working hard behind the scenes put pressure on the chair of that committee now, who is Maria Cantwell, and she is a Democrat from the state of Washington. And of course, Emmert has uh, strong ties in Washington. I don't know if those came into play and how this hearing came to be. But what I think is going on here is that the Republicans pushed to get this hearing. And the witness list looked to me like an NCAA Power Five, Roger Wicker, Jerry Moran witness list, not a Richard Blumenthal witness list or a Cory Booker witness list. And that was a fascinating dynamic as well. But what I think you're going to see is the NCAA and the Power Five setting the stage for going to the Senate for an emergency bill that's very limited, that might even be temporary, that would at least buy time through a temporary preemption provision or some emergency measure that would stall these state laws until the NCAA and Power Five can regroup and figure out what their strategy is going to be. 
And again, a lot of that's going to be informed by Austin and how the Supreme Court views the NCAA's role in governing intercollegiate athletics and the value of its core principles and uh, amateurism. But uh, the NCAA has not ruled out, has never ruled out, suing states whose nil laws go into effect. And they would do that under the Dormant Commerce Clause. We've talked a little bit about that. I'm going to talk about it more because that issue did come up in some questioning that I think was long overdue. And it came from Brian Schatz, who's from Hawaii. He asked some really good questions, including an interesting exchange, which is in the opening montage. I'll talk about that in a second. That really painted Mark Emmert into a corner to declare the NCAA's intentions on whether or not it's going to file federal lawsuits against states that have passed and nil laws that that will go into effect in July. Emmert did not want to answer that question, and he was doing the bob and weave. And Schatz, really unlike any other senator that I've seen in these now five hearings, he didn't take Emmert's BS. He called him out on it politely and professionally, but he wanted an answer. And he wanted an answer from Mark Emmert because he was sitting at the witness table and he is the president of the National Collegiate Athletic Association. Even though he tries to deflect responsibility to the board of governors and to the governing boards and to the membership, he's sitting in that chair and he's making $4 million a year. So Schatz put him to the task and he didn't rule it out, but didn't say that it was a done deal, which tells me that the NCAA and Power Five have been weighing their options carefully. And plan A is to try to put the brakes, at least temporarily, on the state nil laws. And then plan B is a lawsuit. And I think they're fully prepared to file that suit. How that plays out from a litigation standpoint, a strategy standpoint, and all that remains to be seen. But it is a live issue. And Emmert's refusal to provide uh, a straight answer to Schatz questions is evidence of that. And if you have followed Mark Emmert and his style in congressional testimony, you understand what I'm saying. But the NCAA was very effective through its friendly senators of creating two important tactical dynamics in the debate that are simply false narratives. Number one, is that the sky is falling. And if we don't do something immediately, then college sports as we know it will collapse. And there were some witnesses that were all over the map on that. And then the other thing is the NCAA has a talent for making the commonplace seem extraordinary. And some of the senators are finally calling them on both counts. And one of the interesting things that came up, and this came up really on both sides of the aisle, is that, look, you're asking for special treatment here, and you haven't made the case for why you should be treated differently from any other organization in America. And this whole notion that the NCAA should be exempt from having to comply with different standards across different states is really silly on its face when you look at how the rest of corporate America actually operates. And in this six-person witness panel that was five to one in favor of NCAA Power Five interests, the sole witness who opposed federal intervention, made that point really well. And his name is Rod Gilmore, and he's African-American, and 
He was a two-sport athlete at Stanford. He went to Cal Berkeley Law School. He's been practicing law for over 30 years, and he works for ESPN, and he's familiar with the world that college athletes, particularly revenue-producing athletes, live in. And he says that, and this is from his written testimony, he says, while the NCAA might find it inconvenient to address various state nil laws, That is not a compelling reason to enact federal legislation to assist the NCAA. It is normal and customary in this country for businesses that operate nationally to comply with various state laws. That is the norm. Whether it is laws addressing the manufacture, production, distribution, and sale of products or raising capital for a new or existing business, businesses regularly must comply with various laws enacted by states where they want to conduct business. There is no compelling reason to exempt the NCAA from the ordinary course of business and various state laws. And that argument has just been subsumed by all of the NCAAs, the sky is falling and we are special and we have to have this special treatment and this nationally uniform law. And while, yeah, that may be the rule in the rest of corporate America, we're different. We're special. And those rules don't apply to us. So So I, I guess I want to start in a more structured way to talk about this hearing with Roger Wicker. And Wicker is dyed-in-the-wool NCAA Power 5 all the way. And one of the witnesses at the hearing was Mark Few, who is the head coach of the Gonzaga men's basketball team. And Few was testifying on behalf of NCAA and Power 5 interests and the need for a uniform law. Uniform, uniform, uniform. I'll be saying that in my sleep tonight after listening to the hearing. But Wicker asked Few a question about the state of Washington. Gonzaga is located in Washington, and Washington doesn't have a name, image, and likeness law. They haven't done it yet, and I don't know if they're going to. But Wicker was asking Few, look, your home state doesn't have a name, image, and likeness law, but states around you do. Are you going to be at a competitive disadvantage? And again, so much of this discussion was really built around this whole competitive advantage, disadvantage thing and level playing field and all that stuff, which is, which is a ruse given the uh, Power Five's association within an association and its separation from the rest of the NCAA. But uh, Few said, yeah, it's going to be a problem. It's going to be a real problem. And I think it's going to hurt our recruiting and it's going to really place us at a disadvantage. So then Wicker pivots from that question to few. And then he asks Gilmore, he says, look, you're outnumbered five to one here. And I want to just give you an opportunity to explain how you can't agree with Mark Few. That's essentially what he was saying. He didn't say that precisely. So let me just go to what he actually said. Okay, so here's Wicker. This is after he gets his answer from Few. Wicker says, I want to give you an opportunity since it seems that five members of the panel have another view. And would you like to weigh in and respond to their testimony in that regard, with regard to the patchwork? So what Wicker was trying to get Gilmore to concede is that we had to have a single national uniform standard. Gilmore was the only witness saying no. And Wicker really wanted to isolate him. And that was a kind of a Saul Alinsky tactic. So you isolate and you personalize. And it was clear from uh, Wicker's question and the tone in his voice. And you, you can you know listen for yourself. It's in the opening montage. He wanted to highlight Gilmore as the outlier. 
He was the guy who was outside the mainstream. He was the guy who was not buying into these values that everybody agrees with. And that's another narrative they, they pushed. And Emmert did this repeatedly, that everybody agrees. National uniformity, everybody agrees. No one disagrees. But in fact, when you read Gilmore's written testimony, he is speaking the language of freedom, free markets, freedom of opportunity and economic liberty. And what Roger Wick, Roger Wick, a Republican from Mississippi, all of a sudden, all those American principles just go out the window because we need to protect the business interests of the NCAA and the Power Five. That's what this is all about. But he tried to make Rod Gilmore the outlier, the misfit, because he was promoting American values and federalism and competition among states, all the principles that this country is built upon. Roger Wicker was pointing at Rod Gilmore and saying, you're the problem. And the the NCAA and Power Five and all of their minions out in Congress and in the media and in all of their member institutions are so good at doing that. And when you have that kind of uh, five to one imbalance, which is just the way the NCAA likes it, because they can create the impression that there is just only one way to look at this, only one rational way to look at this. And if you have enough credible people, these witnesses are all credible people, articulate, smart people, saying that we need X or Y or Z, it's very difficult to respond to that when you're the only person taking that position. And the NCAA and Power Five know that. And that's how all the hearings in 2020 were structured. There were 16 witnesses and they were overwhelmingly NCAA Power Five witnesses. And in those hearings, they were obvious inside beneficiaries, institutional beneficiary stakeholders and conference commissioners. And the other thing that's important, and Roger Wicker knew that the five witnesses that were going to testify for his purposes and his interests agreed on one thing. And really, there was substantial disagreement on other things, but there was one thing that all five of those witnesses agreed on. And that was a national federal standard that would trump state name, image, and likeness laws. They were arguing for federal preemption. And that was the thing that Wicker wanted. That's the thing that the NCAA wants right now. And so there was no question that's what Wicker was getting at. And he said so explicitly on the the patchwork. And actually, it was a very smart witness selection campaign there because they had people, credible people who disagreed on some fundamental issues that made it appear as if they had a a reasonable range of opinions on how this whole college sports market ought to operate and how nil fits into that and how it should be regulated. And that lent credibility to their agreement on that one issue. So the way this hearing was framed, there were really three separate components to this. One was the NCAA and Power Five's aggressive pursuit of preemption. And that's their sole goal. They wanted to exclude everything else. They wanted to focus exclusively on name, image, and likeness. They wanted all these protections. And although they talked about all three of the big things they wanted, they were really focused on uniformity and preemption. And then On the flip side of that, you had Booker and Blumenthal, who have been pushing an athlete's Bill of Rights, and they wanted to talk about athlete safety and well-being and continuing medical coverage and all the things 
that the NCAA has never gotten around to doing because it drags its feet and that the athletes have been demanding. And those are reasonable demands. And they're not even demands. They're really pleas to get the institutional stakeholders who are making money off of them from at least making sure that they can participate in a safe environment. Is that too much to ask? But that tension came out in whether or not it made sense to go forward just on nil and then delay these other things. The Republicans are saying, we're not ignoring those things. Those things are important. And yeah, we agree that we should talk about those things. But those are just too big. Those issues are just too big. We need to solve nil and we need to solve it now. Okay. Which raises a red flag. And that is, why is nil so important? And the answer to that, and when you press rewind to the very beginning of this nil debate in the perfect storm from May of 2019, nil has been nothing more than a Trojan horse for these extraordinary federal protections and immunities. And then the second theme was the big school, small school dynamic and the way that was framed by the NCAA Power Five interests and their friendly senators and Republican senators was that we're not going to have a level playing field if we just allow all these state laws to go into effect. And the states with the big-time, powerful football schools are going to be running roughshod over these states that don't have those products or states that have less favorable name, image, and likeness laws. And that's a, a silly argument because that competitive disadvantage is already built into existing NCAA governance. And the rich are going to get rich and the poor are going to get poorer. That's the way the system is structured, purposefully structured. And Mark Emmert knows that. And he refuses to acknowledge it. So that was a second dynamic. So you had this, let's just do nil. Let's not talk about these other things. We'll talk about them later. And then let's make sure we're protecting the interests of the small schools. Because some of these things that these athletes are asking for, this medical coverage, oh my gosh, how are the small schools going to afford it? How are they going to be able to compete? How are they going to be able to survive? All of those things, the sky is falling things that the NCAA is so good at propagandizing. And then the third thing were these narratives that the NCAA and Power Five are promoting to try to draw in female senators. And those are this absurd displacement argument. And this came up in several different versions in the hearing. But the notion is that if we just have an unregulated nil market at the national level, then all of these big time football and men's basketball players are going to be making all this money and the resources that they get in their nil contracts is going to take money out of athletics budgets. And that's going to result and decreased opportunities for non-revenue or quote-unquote Olympic athletes. And that is going to be a horrible thing for college sports. And there's simply zero evidence of that. And they're assuming a zero-sum nil market, meaning that there's this fixed amount of money that's available to be distributed out there in the nil market, and that the bulk of that's going to go to this small handful of really famous, talented kind of household name superstars in football and men's basketball, which means necessarily that the small piece of the pie can't support all of the people that are relying on that money. And they also invoke the Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model to justify that without speaking honestly about the fact that that means a massive diversion of wealth from revenue-producing athletes to non-revenue-producing athletes and interests. And then another narrative that has been folded into the, that discussion, and I think this 
really is directed to female senators, is this belief that if there is an unregulated nil market at the federal level, then there will be Title IX implications and that women's sports will be harmed. And that is a bit overstated. And even if Title IX were to apply to this new nil marketplace, and I don't think it will, and I'll explain that in a second, that's an independent legal requirement and a legal mandate that doesn't have anything directly to do with name, image, and likeness. And the NCAA and Mark Emmert have acknowledged that. In fact, during the oral argument on March 31st in this Austin case, Justice Barrett, when questioning the NCAA's lawyer, Seth Waxman, asked, so if we rule against you, and ruling against the NCAA would mean that the NCAA doesn't get antitrust immunity. So she says, if we rule against you, what's the impact of that decision on Title IX in women's sports? And Waxman says, well, Title IX is an independent mandate, and the schools obviously have to adhere to the Title IX mandate. And then he goes on to say some other stuff to try to capitalize on that question. But Mark Emmert said essentially the same thing in 2014 when he was testifying before the Senate Commerce Committee. And that's an important point because the NCAA has been really successful in creating this sort of vaporous argument that lays over all these big uh, decisions in college sports that there's always a Title IX implication and they're happy to have uh, female decision makers, whether they're in Congress or in federal courts, thinking that there's always a Title IX issue and it's a heartstring that they can pull. And it's very seductive. So I have no doubt that the NCAA and the Power Five in their lobbying efforts are playing the Title IX card. And it's a bit misplaced. And you heard that quite a bit at this hearing day before yesterday. Also, you have to remember that in this nil marketplace, as it's shaping up, the only deals that athletes, any athlete, would be able to do under these laws or under any of the federal proposals, would be a deal with a third party. They can't do deals with the university. What does that mean? That means that these deals are completely outside of Title IX's reach. There simply are no Title IX implications in that formula. And the other thing that's uh, relevant to that market feature is that there's no way that any of these athletes can be deemed employees of their universities because they're not allowed to do deals with their universities. They only do it with third parties. So by definition, there can't be an employer-employee relationship in this nil marketplace as it's defined. And the add-on of this requirement that athletes can't be employees to that market framework is ridiculous. It's irrelevant. And it exposes the NCAA's true motives here. And Brian Schatz, the Democrat from Hawaii, asked about that. And he posed the question to a law professor who said, yeah, I agree with you. You're absolutely right. It has absolutely nothing to do with name, image, and likeness. So why does the NCAA want it? Because their campaign has nothing to do with name, image, and likeness. Their sole goal is to acquire and exploit the iron throne of college sports regulation. And if these athletes are prevented under federal law by, by declaration in a bill that has absolutely nothing to do with labor law, that they cannot be employees, then 
there will never be direct payments from universities to the athletes who provide the value in the product. And the athletes will never be able to form a union and have the opportunity to engage in collective bargaining with the universities who are exploiting their labor. So what I want to do real quick is just go through the witnesses that testified. And I'm going to share some thoughts on what their testimony did for NCAA and Power 5 interests. And I'm going to do this in, actually, I don't even remember the order that they testified in. So I'm just going to go through the stack. I have a stack of six written statements here from the witnesses. And let's start with Mark Emmert, because this is really the easiest, because he's basically saying the same stuff he said all along in all these hearings that he's testified in 2020. And it's just right down the line of NCAA talking points and all this propaganda about how much they care about athlete well-being. And in response to some questions that Emmert got about the health and safety issues, Emmert went into his usual propaganda about that being the NCAA's number one priority, athlete well-being and athlete safety and protecting the student athlete. But what nobody asked him, and this would have been a, a good response to that garbage, is that when they have been called in litigation to stand by that statement, they have told federal courts that they owe these athletes absolutely nothing. They have no legal duty to those athletes. They have no legal responsibility for those athletes. So I guess I'll just go through the headings that Emmert provides, one and what the NCAA wants from Congress, and then two about all the things they're just so concerned about and really want to modernize it for the benefit of college athletes. So let's look at... um, the things that the NCAA wants. And at least now the NCAA is coming out and saying it. In these hearings in February of 2020, they wouldn't use the word preemption. They wouldn't use antitrust immunity. They still use the phrase safe harbor, but they come out and say it now. They say they want three things. They want to ensure federal preemption of state laws. That's one of Emmert's headings. Number two, safeguard the non-employment status of student-athletes. And we talked about that. And three, establish limited safe harbor protection. So now these are limited. They're not asking for uh, complete antitrust immunity. We just want a little bit of antitrust immunity, which is facially inconsistent with what the NCAA and the Power Five conferences have argued to the United States Supreme Court in the Austin case. And one of the clips that I included in the montage was Mark Emmert's answer to a question by Republican Senator Mike Lee of Utah. And he's very skeptical of an antitrust exemption, a partial or complete for the NCAA. But Mark Emmert sat there and said out loud with a straight face, that to his knowledge, he's not aware of anybody who has ever advocated that the NCAA should have total antitrust immunity. That is an absolute false statement, and Mark Emmert knows it. There is no question that in the Austin litigation that the United States Supreme Court, in hearing oral argument, having read all the briefs, was faced with a question of whether or not the NCAA should be granted absolute antitrust immunity because that's what they were asking for. And that goes right back to the NCAA's fundamental dishonesty on what they've been seeking all along. And they were seeking the same thing both in Austin and in Congress. And if Mark Emmert's going to look the United States Senate in the eyes under oath and say that the NCAA is not interested in 
total antitrust immunity. Man, I, I don't know how to respond to that. And he wasn't called out on that. And that makes me wonder how fluent are these senators on these issues that the NCAA has uh, promoted, not just in Congress, but in federal courts. So the NCAA was getting two bites at the apple, and they were full bore, full antitrust immunity in the United States Supreme Court and in this Austin case. And the reason that is a really good pathway for them is that if the Supreme Court grants the NCAA antitrust immunity, either explicitly because amateur sports doesn't regulate commercial activity, and we're back to Justice Byron White's thinking in the Board of Regents decision in 1984, or through this dishonest characterization of antitrust immunity as nothing more than a deferential, abbreviated review or a quick look review under a traditional rule of reason analysis, then the antitrust immunity that the NCAA winds up with through the courts is far broader than what they're likely to get through Congress. And that's really important. And if you're asking yourself, so why is the NCAA still talking about antitrust immunity in Congress? Because they may not get it from the U.S. Supreme Court. And if they don't, there's nothing stopping them from going to Congress. In fact, the U.S. Supreme Court might say, look, you're asking for an antitrust immunity here, and we're not going to give it to you. If you want that, you go to Congress. This is an issue that should be addressed in Congress. And there were some comments and observations to that effect at the oral argument on March 31st. So the NCAA, again, it still has this two bites alive now, at least until the Austin decision. And then it can always go back to Congress. And so coming back with this very limited, quote unquote, safe harbor, I think also sets the stage for that down the line. But what they really need right now is federal preemption of state name, image, and likeness laws. And then after making those extraordinary, unprecedented, historic demands on the United States Senate for all these incredible federal protections and immunities, the NCAA then talks about how it wants to promote the continued modernization of college athletics. And it lists all of the things that it wants to do for student athletes. Number one, fulfilling scholarship commitments. And that's a part of the same propaganda they always pump. Providing health care and covering medical expenses. And, and Emmert says, promoting the health and well-being of student athletes is at the foundation of the NCAA's mission. Then, let's see, what else does he throw in there? Ensuring health, wellness, and safety standards. Okay. But there's no enforcement. So the NCAA has no enforcement jurisdiction. So really, if schools aren't complying with whatever standards they set, the NCAA isn't going to do anything. And then what's supporting academic outcomes? Wow. Providing transfer flexibility. That was, again, uh, after decades of the NCAA telling athletes, tough. Then promoting student-athlete voice. And they mentioned the student-athlete advisory committees. I'm going to talk about them when I do an episode on this displacement theory that came up at the hearing, this notion that Olympic athletes are going to be denied their participation opportunities because all these football and men's basketball players are going to steal all the nil money. So, okay, that's Emmert. Let's just toss him aside. Then we had, this was an interesting selection. So the president of Howard University, Dr. Wayne Frederick, and his academic background is really as a physician 
And Howard is a HBCU, and then the, they're in the MEAC conference, Mid-Eastern Athletic Conference, which is a large, very large conference comprised of HBCUs. And so he's a health and safety guy and very thoughtful. He had some good stuff to say, but he was there. And this was, again, a brilliant witness selection tactic. And he's African-American. So he is there to speak to the disparities in resources. So even though he's a physician and even though he clearly cares about health and safety, he's also concerned about the increased costs that an athlete's bill of rights would impose on institutions across Division I, including Howard University. So the argument was, yes, we care about health and safety, but if you're going to you know, impose these requirements on us through federal legislation, then we could go bankrupt. That was the theme. And I would love to hear more from him on that because he comes from a place of credibility on health and safety issues. But the point of his presence was to deflect that issue, to get it off the table so that we didn't have to talk about it, so that he couldn't be asked questions that really go to how that would work and how we could make it work. And if we're looking at really trying to improve the uh, well-being of uh, student-athletes, then let's find a way to make it work. We weren't, they weren't talking about ways to make it work on these other issues that would be included in the Bill of Rights. They were looking at ways to criticize them and dismiss them. And Frederick was a very credible witness on that point. And I was really um, listening to him. I'm thinking, boy, I really want to hear more from him because he has some good stuff to say. But that's not in the conversation. And that's the point. We're not having that conversation, at least not now. And if the NCAA's past history is any guide to their future conduct, that discussion will never occur. Then we had Michael McCann, who's a law professor at, I think he's at, yeah, University of New Hampshire, Franklin Pierce School of Law. He's one of these guys, you, you see his articles occasionally in major media outlets, and he's become a spokesperson, a go-to spokesperson on college sports issues. He also teamed up with Ed O'Bannon to co-author a book titled Court Justice, The Inside Story of My Battle Against the NCAA. But some of his testimony was really interesting to me. And he was clear that he thought a federal law, a national law, and by obvious implication, although he doesn't use the word preemption in his testimony, by obvious implication, the preemption of state nil laws. He is otherwise progressive on a, on a lot of these issues. And again, I think that makes him more credible on that single issue of the need for federal intervention and federal regulation on nil. And his testimony also served another important purpose for the NCAA because he believes that the Senate should be focused on nil. That's how this issue came to the Senate. Let's focus on that issue. And all these other things are important. Let's talk about that down the line. And looking at it from his chair, I think that's an authentic, genuine uh, statement. And it has merit on its face. But if we just play ball with the NCAA and they get everything they want in a name, image, and likeness bill, there's not going to be a discussion about all these other issues that are so important to athletes. So I want to go through a little bit of his testimony because he made some other points that I think are really important. And he starts off really with a, a powerful emotional appeal to college athletes being treated as free Americans in this name, image, and likeness context and that they have a right to their 
own intellectual property, and he couched it as a matter of dignity, not just a matter of money. And so he really sets the table well and credibly because everything he said is true. He also says something else that I think is really important, and, and this is something that doesn't get a lot of attention, and it came up a couple of times. I think Gilmore mentioned this as well. And this undermines this whole narrative that it's going to be the star football and men's basketball players that wind up benefiting the most from nil. And in his observations, and I think this is in his gut too, he doesn't necessarily agree with that. And he thinks that the opportunities for women are going to be really strong. And you're going to see some female athletes being able to exploit their nil in ways that will make a big difference in their lives. And I think that's likely, and I'll talk more about that when we you know, get to this month-by-month examination of the perfect storm. And then, so McCann says, second, states have figured ways to make nil work. So really, he's making the argument for state nil laws. And he also says something else that's really, really important. Or two things. One is that most of these state nil laws, and there are only six or seven that are actually going to go into effect on July 1st, but most of them are bipartisan. So Republicans and Democrats have come together on this. And then the other thing he says, and this is so, so important, is that to a significant degree, all of these laws are very similar. The differences are very difficult to tease out. And Mark Emmert testified in a response to a question about the Florida law that for the most part, the Florida law is consistent with everything the NCAA wants. But that's not the narrative that you're hearing. What you're hearing is this is the end of college sports. And if we don't do something right away, we're going to kill this institution that means so much in America. And then McCann makes another point that it's important. And I think that Gilmore was making this too. And that is, don't we want states to experiment? Don't we want there to be a, a laboratory of approaches and ultimately the market, the legislative market will sort itself out and the best ideas will rise to the top and the bad ideas will fall by the wayside. And then, and I honestly don't get this. I would love to talk to McCann about this, but then he says a federal model would make the most sense. And then he's really spouting NCAA talking points. And then he throws in the possibility of this dormant commerce clause lawsuit as if that is decisive. I mean, yeah, they might sue. It happens all the time. Powerful corporate interests sue for all kinds of reasons. And the fact that the NCAA might have to sue is not an adequate reason to basically deny the athletes the opportunity to let the state uh, nil laws work their magic in the free market. That just doesn't make any sense to me. And then he goes into a couple of short paragraphs. As he closes that section out well, by saying a federal standard would resolve state differences and likely ward off certain types of litigation. But why is that the role of Congress? Why does Congress have to protect a nonprofit organization from litigation? And then he says, also, he questions the merits of a state-by-state approach when many of you and your colleagues support a federal nil approach. Well, do they? And this gets to this other narrative that the NCAA painted so effectively. And some of my clips of Mark Emmert go to this point where he suggests consensus on these central features that the NCAA insists upon in any name, image, and likeness law, including preemption. And there's this buy-in to the consensus argument, and I just don't know if that's true. And we haven't had an actual bill that's gone to 
a vote and debate on an actual vote. So we don't know that and we can't assume that. And the NCAA wants us to assume that. And then he says several members have proposed nil bills. I think he's talking about in the Senate. There are differences among them. Some focus on nil, while others propose more transformative changes. And so then he wants to talk about the things that they have in common. And then this is the money line. So he says, rather than accentuating their difference, I'll stress what brings them together. They all call for a federal nil standard and common sense restrictions. So now the the overarching message from McCann is what really matters here is that everybody agrees that there should be a federal nil standard with common sense restrictions. So what are they? And then he starts with a section saying we need to talk about nil here not anything else. We don't need to talk about this athlete's Bill of Rights stuff. And then he lists a series of things that he thinks should be included in any federal nil law. And he says first, and when I go through this list, you're going to hear some things that you're going to hear time and time and time again, because some of these features are common to what the NCAA has wanted all along from the very beginning of its name, image and likeness campaign back in May of 2019, and what the states have ultimately included in their nil laws. And this just shows the extent to which the NCAA's narratives have been woven into the thinking at the state level, and at least on the Republican side, at the national level in the Senate and in the House of Representatives. So the first thing is, he says, it's reasonable for a school to wish to avoid conflicts between its contracts and those of students, including athletes. So that's a big prohibition because it takes out of the market the most valuable name, image, and likeness opportunities for athletes. Uh, Second, the school would be able to craft rules to govern permissible and impermissible types of endorsements and and sponsorships. And it's not clear here whether he's talking about some of the kind of the sin products and tobacco and alcohol and all that stuff and not having no agreements um, for those kinds of companies. But the way it's written, it's pretty broad. And this is a feature that's in the Wicker Bill that the institutions or coaches through rule making and team policies can place restrictions on nil activity. And, and that exception could swallow the rule. Third, let's see, he talks about fair market value. There's this component in all these bills that all of these deals have to be at fair market value. What, what is that? And how do you determine it? Isn't fair market what a willing buyer and a willing seller agree upon? And if there are extraordinary features or red flags, those will be pretty obvious, I think. And this is a provision that's clearly aimed at revenue-producing athletes because they're concerned that there's going to be some bogus agreement that would disguise really a pay-for-play arrangement or an inducement for a high-value athlete to attend a particular university. But in that market, in that high-level, high-value, revenue-producing athlete market, Fair market value is going to be very difficult to determine. And in all the other contexts where you have similar transactions, like the coaches. So Mark Few, I'm sure he has a deal with whatever shoe company he's working with. And all the big-time head coaches have not only university deals, but individual deals. How do you determine what fair market value is for those deals? It's such a unique market that I think is very difficult to say, oh, that's fair market value. Oh, that's uh, not fair market value. 
But these athletes are being subjected to that kind of scrutiny. And nobody else, no other students are subjected to that kind of scrutiny. And that's a substantial limitation on revenue-producing athletes. And then let's see. He does say that a federal bill should not contain an antitrust exemption. And again, having him as a witness and saying, no, we don't want antitrust, when that's one of the key components of the NCAA's power grab and has been all along, that makes him appear reasonable and credible. But his real message here and the real purpose of this hearing was preemption, and he's all on board with that. Then he says education should be part of the bill, and then you throw in Title IX, and then he does say, and I like this one, uh, there should be enforcement features that benefit athletes. A lot of these bills don't really give the athletes a direct remedy against the universities themselves. The universities are basically protected from any claims, but the agents, the third-party contractors, and the athletes uh, are subject to substantial risk here. Let's see. And then there's uh, transparency and all that stuff. And so I've, I've talked a little bit about Gilmore's testimony. I'm not going to go through that again. But so far, we've talked about four witnesses, and three are on board with the federal standard, with preemption. And uh, again, McCann would say he's limiting that to name, image, and likeness. But once you buy into the preemption theory, the devil will be in the details. And some of these proposals that came through the Senate, including Rubio's bill and Wicker's bill and Moran's bill and the stealth bills that were offered by the NCAA and the Power Five before the July 2nd hearing in the Judiciary Committee, those included preemption provisions that would cover any NCAA compensation limit. So no state could regulate in any area that conflicted in any way with any NCAA compensation limit or eligibility rule. So that's clearly what the NCAA wants. It's clearly what the NCAA and Power Five friendly senators have put into legislation. And once you buy into preemption without getting that nailed down, you can just say until you're blue in the face that this should be limited to nil, but that's not where this may land. And that's a problem. And then obviously you have Emmert with his propaganda and Dr. Frederick landed in the same place, federal regulation on nil, but I think for a much different reason. And he really has a unique set of circumstances representing an HBCU. And that raises all kinds of issues that would be great to discuss. But based on what the NCAA is trying to do here, that discussion is not going to be part of uh, any discussion. And then let's see, who do we have here? Oh, Matt Mitten. Okay. And he's a professor at Marquette, and he's a sports law guy, and he's written prolifically. And he testified before the Judiciary Committee. I think that was the July 22nd hearing that Lindsey Graham chaired in 2020. And he was called as ostensibly an independent witness on antitrust exemptions. And what's interesting, I went back and compared his testimony from that hearing to the, te- the written testimony that he served up here. And there's, there's some important differences. A lot of it's the same stuff. But one of the things that's clear to me is that when he testified in July of 2020, he was emphasizing the antitrust exemption. And he was articulating it as a limited antitrust exemption, limited to nil. And I believe that's what he intended, but didn't talk about the Austin case in that context. And and does the same thing in this written testimony. But one of the things that jumps out to me 
is that uniformity is the number one issue. It's the first thing that he addressed. There's a heading that says uniform federal nil law and preemption of state intercollegiate athlete nil laws. That's number one. And then he talks at length about the necessity for a single national standard. And in the process of that, he kind of goes through all the NCAA talking points. This is right down the NCAA's line. He's talking about the business model and the collegiate model and how, let's see, wait a second, where is that? Let me go back. He is talking about how universities operate and how they take money from revenue producers and they shift it to other departments. And that's just what universities do. We're right back to Miles Brand's conceptualization of the student model. And I'm not even sure why that's relevant to the uniformity issue. But in this discussion about the necessity for one national standard, he talks about Austin. And this, again, I don't know what to make of this. So he spends a paragraph talking about how Austin has nothing to do with nil. It's not going to address any of the issues that are being discussed in Congress. But he doesn't say that the NCAA and Power Five are seeking antitrust immunity. And that's the very purpose of their appeals in that case. And they appealed. The athletes didn't appeal. And the reason they appealed had nothing to do with these education-related benefits. It's because they wanted to get in front of the U.S. Supreme Court a shot at absolute antitrust immunity. And talking about Austin and not mentioning that, particularly when two pages later, you're making the case for a limited safe harbor antitrust immunity provision. I don't know. And then in his discussion of this antitrust exemption, and he wants an express antitrust exemption from Congress. He says, without an express antitrust exemption, it is possible that courts might judicially create some form of implied antitrust immunity that would prevent a federal nil rights law from being used as the basis of alleged federal or state antitrust law claims against the NCAA and or its member athletic conferences and educational institutions. But this is clearly a second best option that is fraught with uncertainty and unpredictability and would require litigation to answer this question. And again, without any discussion about the fact that there's a case in the bosom of the United States Supreme Court that is going to try to achieve an antitrust immunity that's broader than anything that the NCAA could realistically get from Congress. I, all right. And Mark Few, I, I just I have a soft spot in my heart for the basketball coaches. I, I really like Few, although I did write a post about him when the name, image, and likeness law came out of California in September of uh, 2019. Few had some really uh, over-the-top comments directed at Gavin Newsom, telling him to stay in his lane, and he didn't know what he was talking about and all that stuff. But I, I think Few's heart is in the right place. I think this is true for all of the coaches who understand what their players' lives are really like. And I haven't, you know, gotten to my episodes on coaches. It's a very complicated analysis. It's complicated for me as a former player, and I have had some mixed feelings about how the market has evolved and how the relationship between the coaches and the players has changed as the product has become more commercialized and professionalized. But I think he wants to do the right thing by these athletes. It's not clear to me how he understands the nuances of some of this legal and lobbying stuff that's going on behind the scenes. And he's a great guy. He's a great spokesperson. He adds credibility 
because he is the real deal. And you can tell his players really like him. And he's obviously a, just an exceptional basketball coach. So anyway, so the coach gets a pass. And then let's see, it was this. Oh, this was Gilmore's. So I, I've already talked about him. So then the last thing I want to talk about are these quotes from the opening montage to this episode. And the, the first few really go to this central problem with having the NCAA being in the iron throne of college sports regulation because they have proven incapable of proactively acting on behalf of athletes and consistent with principles of well-being. So that first clip was from a senator from New Mexico, Ben Ray Lujan, and he went down the list and just asked every witness if they believe that we should provide no benefits and all of them. Yes, 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 yes. And then Lujan asks the obvious question. Why did it take so long? We've been arguing about this for over a decade. It's common sense and coaches are making millions of dollars and students are making nothing. And then Emmert tries to answer it and it was just classic Emmert doublespeak. And then I included a clip from Senator Blumenthal, Richard Blumenthal, who spoke pretty directly. I like his approach. And honestly, he was a better spokesperson than Cory Booker was for the athletes. Cory Booker was allowed to testify. So he came as a witness, just as Anthony Gonzalez did in that first hearing in February of 2020. He was a witness at the hearing, not asking the questions. And Booker was all over the map. And sometimes I wasn't sure who he was arguing for because he conceded that if these nil laws go into effect on July 1st, and all hell is going to break loose, and there will be an existential threat to the uh, business model, all this stuff, he's making the NCAA's arguments. Blumenthal actually had to reorient him and ask him a question to try to pull him back to the Athlete's Bill of Rights. Uh, anyway, so Blumenthal, I think, just in terms of the messaging, uh, did a much better job than Booker did. But he says, let's get real here. The NCAA is only at the table because it's been dragged kicking and screaming here. And they've been dithering and delaying too long. And that was a polite way of putting it. And in that vein, then I had a clip from Marsha Blackburn, a Republican from Tennessee. And you heard some clips from her from that February hearing. And Mark Emmert has just rubbed her the wrong way. And that's easy to understand when you have listened to enough of Mark Emmert's BS. So Blackburn says, look, we've been waiting for you to act. And we told you that if you can't do this name, image, and likeness compensation, we'll do it for you. And that's the posture which we find ourselves right now. So you've created this emergency through mismanagement, through bad faith delay. And now you're coming to us and asking us to solve it at the last minute with these extraordinary federal protections and immunities. And she says, that's why states have taken it upon themselves to do what the NCAA has proven incapable of doing. And then let's see, I have a clip from Blumenthal where he says, look, there's been a chain reaction of states filling a gap to protect people where the corporate interests or the institutional interests or the federal legislatures, the House and the Senate have chosen not to act for whatever reason. The states have stepped in to do it. And that happens all the time. That's part of our federal system. And Blumenthal says that explicitly, says it's classically what happens in our federal system. He says, I've been at consumer protection for three decades now, and this historical pattern is repeated every time where states fill a gap and then a national standard is sought by a group. 
that fears a patchwork. And that's what the NCAA is doing. It's, it's running to uh, friendly interests in the Senate to get federal protection because it has refused to change voluntarily its 19th century business practices. And then I include these clips from Brian Schatz, uh, who's a Democrat from Hawaii. He got right to the issue, and he is the first senator in these five hearings that has really gotten close to the true purpose of this entire campaign for nil compensation, and that is to have these broad, vague outlines identified at the federal level so the, the Senate and the House can call it a nil compensation law, but the true purpose of the law is to add on all these things that have no business being there that basically confer upon the NCAA the iron throne of college sports regulation. And that's what this is all about. And that's what my podcast is about, because that is the fundamental purpose of this entire campaign. And Schatz finally got to it. And so he says, I have a tactical question. If we're trying to enact a, a national nil standard, Dr. Emmett, I'm trying to figure out why we would try to complicate the matter like providing immunity against claims from former students. What has that got to do with the subject at hand? Thank God he asked that question. And Emmert gave an Emmert-like response that was essentially nonsensical. And in my judgment, really just reinforced the fact that the NCAA just wants to be immune from uh, liability because they think they are above the law as the guardians of the amateur ideal. And then Schatz asks Emmert, Look, if you don't get what you want from us, are you going to turn around and sue one of these states under a dormant commerce clause theory? And Emmert just does the two-step. And Schatz really leans into him and doesn't let him get away with the old NCAA Mark Emmert two-step. And he says, look, I know that no decision has been made yet, but you're here and I'm asking you, what are you going to do. And then Emmert, again, he dances around it and doesn't rule it in and doesn't rule it out. It was just one of those answers where Emmert was in complete weasel mode and you say, wow, every penny that guy's getting, those multi-million dollar salaries, is paid from the labor of Division I men's basketball players, the overwhelming majority of whom are African-American. Moreover, all of the legal expenses that the NCAA incurs in its litigation initiatives, whether it's defending a suit or pursuing it, are paid from revenues generated from the March Madness CBS Turner contract. Again, the laborers who provide that revenue are Division I, elite Division I men's basketball players who have literally given the NCAA and Mark Emmert and the Board of Governors the money and resources to fund the weapons that are going to be used against these kids. It's unconscionable. And Mark Emmert sits there before the United States Senate, and he gets all coy and weasel-wordy about his intentions of what they're going to do next to screw these kids. Maybe the Board of Governors will give him another contract extension after that performance in the Senate. So let's see. What's the next one? Then he talks about this student-athlete issue. He directs this question to Professor McCann. And he says, look, we've tacked on this students can't be employees thing. What the hell does that have to do with name, image, and likeness? I don't see the connection here. And McCann agrees with him. He says, I don't see it either. It really has no business being here. And what Schatz does is he ties together 
this nil compensation issue and then these extraordinary things that the NCAA is asking for. And so he frames it in terms of the NCAA saying it's giving up something by offering name, image, and likeness compensation and the trade offer these uh, massive changes, fundamental changes in the relationship between the institutional stakeholders and the athletes who provide the value in the product. And it doesn't make any sense to me. And that trade-off is not an equal trade-off. And that is precisely the point. Chats was giving the NCAA some credit for offering something of value in this name, image, and likeness campaign. I don't think that's going to happen. And I haven't seen a thing of value. And the NCAA hasn't changed one word, not one word of bylaw 12.5 relating to promotional activities in which it prohibits athletes from exploiting their name, image, and likeness. And then I go through, uh, let's see, Mike Lee from Utah. He asked a question about the antitrust immunity, and Emmert gives that fundamentally dishonest response that he doesn't know anyone that's arguing for a complete antitrust immunity. That's precisely what the NCAA is doing in the United States Supreme Court. And then I had a few clips that really go to Emmert's insinuation of this consensus principle that everybody agrees to a uniform national standard. Everybody agrees to the need for preemption. Everybody agrees to a single national standard. And that has just become the drumbeat for the NCAA and the Power Five and their allies in the Senate. And then there's the wicker quote to uh, Gilmore where he says, you're outnumbered five to one. Then Blumenthal says something that's really important here. And there wasn't a single athlete who testified at that hearing, not a single athlete. And they absolutely need to get the athletes in front of the Senate, in front of the House of Representatives. And they have steadfastly avoided that. And there wasn't a single current revenue-producing athlete who testified in any of the four hearings in 2020. Why not? Because the NCAA doesn't want you to hear what they have to say. And when I was talking about that uh, Wicker bill, or maybe it wasn't, it was a different post, I was talking about the witnesses that were actually called in these hearings and who they could have called. Why not call LeBron James or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or Bill Russell or Oscar Robertson or some current NCAA revenue-producing athletes who disagree with the NCAA's approach or the Power Five's approach. You're not going to see that. And one of the things that was really discouraging for me in this hearing is that the Democrats have ostensible control of the Senate. And this hearing was right out of NCAA central casting, which makes me wonder where Cantwell is. But, but Blumenthal says, look, we need to listen to the athletes. They are the ones who are all too frequently outnumbered in this conversation. They're not only outnumbered, they don't even exist. And then I follow that with a uh, quote from Cantwell. She's closing out the hearings. I'm not sure where she sits, but I, I don't know. But she says, thank you. Well, I do want to thank everybody for participating. And to Mr. Gilmore's point, when he was talking about athlete representation, we are going to have a panel in the future that will include a panel of athletes so that we can hear their illumination on healthcare scholarship standards and education issues. And the irony of that, that the United States Senate is about to embark on a piece of legislation that's going to fundamentally transform college sports forever and permanently shut down the athletes' rights movement. And Cantwell says, well, we'll have some hearings later on about athletes' issues. It's stunning, really, the extent to which the NCAA has been able to navigate through the Senate to results like this. 
And I don't know. I am increasingly pessimistic that this Congress is going to do anything that benefits these athletes. And then I close it out with <laughs> Marsha Blackburn. You got to love her. God love her. I'm, I'm sure she was a fantastic mom. And boy, when she gets that look and she says, Dr. Emmert, I think it's disappointing. <laughs> the way she says it, I love it. I just absolutely love it. But she says, look, your board of governors chose not to vote to honor the name, image, and likeness benefits that you've been promising for years. And the NCAA set the January 2021 deadline. Congress didn't do it. The athletes didn't do it. The NCAA did. And then they didn't honor it. And the way that they dishonored it was completely dishonest. There was no pressure from the Justice Department. That was made up stuff. And I'm going to talk about that too. They just pulled the plug because they lost their advantage in the Senate. And what we're seeing now is that they have retooled their strategy. They're repositioning and they're coming back in with this triage mentality. And it's going to be, let's get these state laws struck down through preemption. And then she segues that into questioning Emmert's leadership. And this is beautiful to, to have her just put this on the table just a couple of weeks after the NCAA Board of Governors, actually about a month after the NCAA Board of Governors grants Mark Emmert a contract extension. And she says, under your leadership, student athletes have been really sidelined when it comes to these issues because of an NCAA that cannot seem to make up its mind. So my question to you is simply this. Do you think it's time to call your leadership of the organization into question? Do you think you are still capable and fit to lead this organization to make a decision that is going to be fair to the student athletes and their parents? That's a, an incredible question. And Emmert comes back and says, with all due respect, that's not a question that I need to answer. That's a question for those for whom I work. Whew, okay. So I thought that was a nice way to just close out the montage because ultimately these are uh, issues of leadership and leadership matters. And we're in a crisis of institutional leadership across the country on multiple levels. And college sports is reeling right now. And wow. I mean, yeah, I, I'm just going to leave it at that. We'll talk in more detail about that in other episodes. But this hearing was really fascinating to me because the NCAA and Power Five are showing their hand. And we're also seeing for the first time, again, this theme that I have been talking about for almost two years now, and that is that all of the discussions that occur in Congress may not be driven by the NCAA's interest on the one hand and the athletes on the other, but by power five political interests. And I can promise you that the power five conferences, which started hiring their own lobbying firms back in December of 2019 because they weren't happy with what Mark Emmert and the NCAA was doing. That that, that built-in lobbying campaign, they don't need to really hire lobbyists. They just need to marshal their in-state resources and put some political pressure on these senators to get on board with whatever they want. That's the most direct path to NCAA Power 5 friendly legislation. And I think you're starting to see some of that. In. And there's all this talk about bipartisan and Blumenthal and Booker were saying all that too. I'm not sure that where they're landing is really on common ground here. But the NCAA and Power 5 got a venue to make the case and create the appearance that everybody agrees on one thing, the federal preemption of state name, image, and likeness laws. All right, and now I have to add an addendum. I was just about to close this thing out. But occasionally, as I'm doing an episode, I'll go back to confirm something that I talked about but wasn't 100% sure of. And I just did that. As I'm finishing up this episode, 
I did that. I went back to the Senate Commerce Committee's website to take a look at one of the witnesses' written testimony that's posted there. And I see that today, Maria Cantwell, the Democrat from Washington who chairs the Commerce Committee, has added to the calendar an impromptu hearing for June 17th, so that's next week, where the committee's going to hear from athletes. And I just find that fascinating. And the statement on the Commerce Committee website talks about the hearing, and it's titled NCAA Student Athletes and Nil Rights. And here's the description. U.S. Senator Maria Cantwell, Democrat of Washington, the chair of the Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation, will convene a hearing titled NCAA Student Athletes and Nil Rights at 10 a.m. on Thursday, June 17, 2021. The hearing will highlight the experiences of college athletes as Congress considers proposals to enable the athletes to monetize their name, image, and likeness, nil, improve athlete health care, and enhance scholarship protections and transfer rights, among other matters. Yeah, that's going to be really, really interesting after what happened on that hearing uh, in the hearing on Wednesday. But if you know the NCAA, you know the Power Five, you know how they have manipulated Congress throughout this disingenuous nil campaign. You have to ask yourself, why is this hearing being conducted on the fly before July 1st? And I believe the answer to that is that the NCAA and Power Five are positioning themselves for a vote before July 1st on a narrow preemption provision that will give them relief from these state laws. And then they can say, look, there was athlete input. We talked to the athletes. We've heard from the athletes. And again, it's going to be really interesting to see who testifies and what they have to say. And then what happens between June 17th and July 1st. And I'm going to leave up my comments on her observations from Wednesday, as well as my thoughts on the absence of athlete testimony through the five hearings that have been conducted since February of 2020, because I think they're still relevant because it is clear that this is an afterthought. This is just some procedural step that is being used here before there's an actual vote on any legislation. So today is June 11th, Friday, June 11th. The hearing was on Wednesday, June 9th. And then the hearing next week will be on the 17th. And there's no question in my mind that this just came up. They haven't even identified the witnesses yet. In the section of the press release on the Commerce website where they would identify the witnesses, it says TBA, to be announced. And for sure, if Cantwell knew that hearing was on the calendar when she closed out the uh, hearing the day before yesterday, she would have mentioned that. And the athletes' rights advocates like Blumenthal, who focused on that issue, the absence of athlete testimony, he would have talked about that as well. So it's going to be very, very interesting to see who winds up on that witness panel. And that's going to be revealing. Wow, never a dull moment in the campaign by the Power Five and the NCAA to gain control of the iron throne of college sports regulation. But rest assured, I will be paying close, close attention next Thursday, and then I will get something up as quickly as I can to analyze this and maybe get some insight into what's going to happen between June 17th and July 1st. Okay, with that, let's close this thing out for good. 
officially. And I just want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. Thank you.